0: Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books, Week 47. This week's book is a novel, one of only three novels left in this series and the last contemporary novel published in 2010. I've read some excellent novels in the past decade: books by Francis Spufford, Francis Harding's magical stories aimed at young adults, the inevitable name check of Mantell's series about Thomas Cromwell, the McHeron thrillers, C.J. Sansom's historical thrillers, the amazing Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, and also her huge masterpiece, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. While I've enjoyed many novels, with the honourable exception of Piranesi none have made as deep an impression as The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de I've read three of David Mitchell's nine novels. His first huge bestseller, Cloud Atlas, also turned into a film. His later book, Slade House, and The Thousand Autumns. I am every now and then intrigued by his books, but there are always more to read on the big pile beside my bed, and I never quite get round to it. However, The Thousand Autumns stands out, and like many of the other books I have reread for this series, I found myself loving it even more this time around. I didn't shed tears, which I did on my first read, but I found myself unable to stop rereading it over and over. Although I have tried to avoid spoilers, this is not a book mm, primarily about plot and suspense although it has deeply suspenseful moments and the main plot is sinister, exciting and in parts quite frightening. In various ways, this novel has elements in common with some of the other books I've loved and covered in this podcast in recent weeks. There is some serious naval action, like Week 41's This Thing of Darkness. It is about ways of being and belonging in a new and foreign land, like both Away and The People's Act of Love, And like all of the three above, it is historical fiction. So what is it all about and why is it so good? The book opens in 1799 with two arrivals. The first is a baby ushered into existence by a gifted young midwife, Orito Aibagawa. A baby which appears to have been born dead and which she was advised to cut out of the body of its mother, to attempt to save at least that life. Instead, determined to bring the child out of the womb intact, she uses methods she has acquired from her father, a doctor, who has been able to borrow books from a Dutchman, also a doctor, to deliver the baby, saving its mother's life. There is a wondrous moment when she believes some small animal has made its way into the labour room, and then realises it is the call of the baby, a boy, gathering strength and determined to live. The second arrival is a young Dutch clerk, Jacob de Zut, in his mid-twenties, strong-armed by the father of the girl he hopes to marry, into taking a position with the Dutch East India company, unaware how close it is to bankruptcy. De Zut is decent, clever, but naive. He arrives on an American ship, the Shenandoah at Dejima, an artificial island just off the port of Nagasaki, initially constructed to contain Portuguese traders. The Portuguese were expelled almost two centuries before, after their priests had made sufficient Catholic converts to attempt a rebellion against the military rule of the Edo, or Tokugawa shogunate. The Dutch East India Company was able to fill Japan's needs for silks and cottons, shark skins and deer pelts, but perhaps more critically for books, medical knowledge and scientific instruments. There was a movement to learn Dutch and the purchase of books was unrestricted. And as part of their demands for tribute, the Japanese were happy to receive inventions such as telescopes, globes, medical instruments, alongside demonstrations of devices and experiments such as hot air balloons. Although Mitchell plays around a little with his dates, essentially he captures this particular place and time, inserting into the narrative a brutal bait-and-switch trade move, a thriller involving a monastery inland from Nagasaki, and a love triangle. Then there is also his writing style, evocative, amusing, elegant and clear. He is a master of showing, conveying Jacob's fear when the psalter he has smuggled into Dejima strictly against Japanese edict that all religious materials must be sealed shut for the duration of a man's stay on the island is nearly discovered. His embarrassment, first when he is pissed on by William Pitt, the resident monkey of Dejima, and then when he becomes the unwitting subject of one of Dr. Marinus's more elaborate medical demonstrations involving smoke, and an uncomfortable form of colonic irrigation. More of Dr. Marinus later. The characterization in the book completely worked for me. The three central characters are Jacob, the midwife Orito, and Ogawa Uzemon, a d- translator at Dejima. Both Jacob and Uzemon love Orito Abagawa, despite the burn on her face. Although Jacob is the primary protagonist. Different sections of the narrative are given to Orito and Uzemon. We see all three of them through each other's eyes and also through their own eyes, their failures and failings, their desires, their yearning. After reading Cloud Atlas, I was expecting a complicated narrative structure, tricksy time leaps and many characters who are depicted vividly but are fundamentally, fundamentally puppet-like, subject to the author's whims, and in many cases pretty unpleasant and unlikable individuals. The Thousand Autumns is very different. There is a depth to the main characters and a fundamental decency. Although inexperienced, Jacob does not seem completely clueless. He meets his fellow Dutch expatriates on Dejima a motley range of chances all furious that he is undertaking a thorough audit of the takings for the previous five years at the trading post. They know, as he does, that the previous Dutch chief of station was corrupt, that they have enriched themselves at the expense of both the Japanese and the Dutch East India Company. Ambitious, God-fearing, his hopes pinned on the sponsorship of the new chief, Vorstenbosch, Jacob is weary and wary. When the men try to force him to drink adulterated coffee, he startles them all by a judicious loss of temper, kicking the cup out of the hands of one of the Dutchmen, smashing the cup and drenching the men in the dregs of coffee with their spit and who knows what else within it. One of the most interesting aspects of the book is the friendship Between Jacob and the Dutch doctor attached to the trading post, Marinus, an irascible and intelligent man, really the only person for whom Jacob feels any affinity in the Dutch or European camp. Marinus is also the only person who has any kind of meaningful relationship with the Japanese and some of the other foreign people on Dejima. Whilst most of the servants to the Dutch on Dejima are slaves from Batavia, Malaysia or elsewhere, Marinus has freed his servant. He is offering training to Japanese doctors and he is cultivated, widely read and repelled by the behaviour and attitudes of his compatriots. It is through Marinus that Jacob is able to meet and get to know Arito Ibagawa, who is allowed to train alongside her male peers partly because she is the daughter of a respected doctor and partly because of her gifts as a midwife. Orito is a strong and resourceful woman, initially protected by her father's status. But when he dies, she is vulnerable, particularly when it emerges that he owed significant sums to the sinister abbot Enomoto, guardian of a shrine on Mount Shiranui. She is essentially abducted from Nagasaki and taken to Enomoto's monastery to serve as midwife to the nuns. Of course, there is the question of why nuns would need a midwife. Orito's discoveries at the monastery unfold simultaneously with the passing on of a scroll written by a monk who escaped from the shrine through various pathways, which reaches Uemon and then Jacob himself. Obawa Uemon is perhaps my favourite character. He has been adopted by the first interpreter of the Guild of Interpreters serving Dejima. He loves books, loves learning, not simply Dutch learning, but having access to all the ideas and knowledge that books can bring to him. His first request of Jacob is to borrow a copy of Adam Smith's Wealth of the Nations. He is honourable, generous, and deeply conflicted. He owes everything. his adoptive parents but when he fell in love with Orito it was they who refused to countenance the match and instead married him to a shy woman who is ferociously bullied by the Ogawa mother in particular especially once it appears that this poor young woman is barren. When he realises Orito's likely fate Uemon is determined to rescue her and sets off for the shrine Before leaving, he passes the scroll detailing the cruel and unusual practices of the monastery to Jacob. He knows of Jacob's love for Orito and also is aware that his attempt to rescue her may not succeed. All the events of the book unfold against the backdrop of the Napoleonic wars raging in Europe, which severely damaged trade and the Dutch East India Company in particular, as well as the restrictions and isolation of the Edo period in Japan. Mitchell positions his story within a historical framework which leads directly to Jacob's eventual entrapment in Dejima, not for one year or two, but for 18 full years. The book is packed with treachery and double-dealing, and our three primary characters are all victims, to a great extent, of the malicious intentions and actions of others around them. How they handle their misfortunes, is one of the most poignant and engaging elements of this rich novel. The book is also a meditation on the impact of trade and imperialism. Mitchell writes one excoriating chapter in the voice of one of the slaves of the Dutchman, Weh, who has been assigned as manservant to the chief clerk of Dejima, the unedifying, loathsome Prussian Fisher. In some respects, Fisher is a pantomime villain and there is a degree of gratifying comeuppance for him, but Way's chapter in particular lays bare the destructive, repugnant nature of slavery. To survive, Way creates for himself a mental refuge, a home reminiscent of his own home island, and daydreams there in his mind island, testing his ownership of his own thoughts and desires. He believes and dreams of slitting Fisher's throat, of making love to one of the courtesans who service the Europeans of fishing and being back with his family on the island which has given him his name, Wei. But he also realises that every time he daydreams and is brought back to his miserable present state, it is as if he has been recaptured by the slavers however much he may despise his Dutch masters he is at their mercy and we see how little there is of any mercy in Fisher's physical and verbal attacks on Wei. The exception is Marinus who Wei considers to be immune to the complaints and greed of most of the white men. All the white men do in Wei's view is to lust after possessions. Mitchell writes for white men to live is to own Or to try owning more or to die trying to own more their appetites are astonishing of course this is a modern insight made by a modern writer in a recent novel but way's perception of the men he must call his masters seems ancient and deep-seated his situation is extreme torn from his home, sold, battered by one terrible owner after another, compliant and subservient only to save himself from assault. Wei's humanity is contrasted with a brutal lack of humanity of many of the Europeans. Fisher, his master, who takes pleasure in humiliating and hitting him, and who, with another of the Dutch officers, almost batters to death a young man, Tjaiko, also a slave, and so completely without rights. Having lived for five years in China as a foreigner in a very different culture, an aspect of the book I particularly enjoyed was the tentative dance between Jacob and Uzemon, a manoeuvring beyond the restraints of protocol and strict regulation governing interaction between the Japanese and the Europeans on Dejima. Their relationship lasts only a year, but it is founded on respect, on kindness and a growing degree of affection. Jacob longs to learn about Japan, to learn Japanese and Uzaymon, is equally thirsty for European knowledge and culture, stifled by his country's refusal to engage with the world beyond its shores. Their cultures and beliefs are wildly different, but they manage to build a genuine connection and friendship, one which ultimately saves Orito from the fate that Abbot Enomoto had decreed for her. Mitchell himself is married to a Japanese woman and lived there for many years. He captures both the curiosity, the intriguing nature of the other culture and the other way of being, and the pitfalls with sensitivity and wit. Given the thousands of books that are published each year, the speed with which they are trumpeted, celebrated and then relegated to oblivion, I do hope that this generous, intelligent exploration of engagement between humans of different places and times lasts and is discovered by new readers next week join me for a look at rory stewart's the places in between about his epic walk between herat and kabul in 2002